0: Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. It's a large portion of scripture, which I'll read this morning for all of us. And uh, so let's hear God's word and concentrate upon his infallible and inerrant word. Beginning in verse 20, chapter 17, Luke's gospel. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It would be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering they said to him, where Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of the Word this morning. We ask for an increasing measure of the Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right off the bat, you're going to ask me why I read verse 37 in my Bible, in the New American Standard Version, uh, there is uh, a verse thirty six, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Now we know that that uh, particular verse was added because that God has given us thousands upon thousands of manuscripts over generations and generations, uh, manuscripts that are as uh, uh, well that are exceedingly old, even three hundred years after the year of Christ in some instances. The fact is that, uh, at least as it relates to the New Testament, the Old Testament even older. But we know that that verse, that verse specifically, though not originally found in Luke's gospel, having been added by a copyist in in some early days of when they would copy the scriptures by hand. uh, But that verse in its entirety is found in Matthew's gospel, uh, explicitly stated there in the words of Christ. The difficulty in the copyist's view is simply that he added that text from the Matthew text. And it's not that Luke didn't necessarily want that included, but that was not part of Luke's uh, statement or, 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 or confession of what he heard or what was shared with him. Nonetheless, we need not fear because we have so many examples of Scripture, so very many faithful texts that we understand uh, where that verse has come from and why it was added. But we have a, a sure and steadfast testimony of God's inerrant and infallible word, and I'm thankful for that. Perhaps in the ESV, if you're reading the ESV today, it simply goes from verse 35 to verse 37. And verse 36 isn't there, but there's a little number one. And if you look down below, it has that verse, and it says exactly what has taken place there. But here in this wonderful account, Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and also with the disciples, the Pharisees concerning the kingdom of God and the disciples concerning the second return or second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many, many views concerning the return of Jesus Christ, and there are many, many views concerning the kingdom of God. The timing of Christ's return, and what is the kingdom of God, and how is the kingdom of God established on the earth? And this question concerning, at least first, the kingdom of God, and when or or what it is, and when it in fact will come or be inaugurated, is a fascinating question for believers even to today, especially in our present-day world, when we experience wars and rumors of wars, And when we are under duress and we know that more Christians are being persecuted in this generation and put to death than at any other point in Christian history, believe that or not. And so we might be tempted to cry out and we ought to Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. And I hope that is a theme of our lives where we long to be in the presence of Christ, when we long for Jesus Christ to make all things right. And to make all things well. We live in a fallen world and we know it. A world that is falling apart. A world that is fractured. In fact, there was a a symposium this last week at Yale University. And the intention was to show, in a laudable attempt uh, and intention, but to show that two opposing viewpoints could coexist, could 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 argue, uh, and yet get along, and still be in the same venue together. There was one person from some atheist organization; she was a committed and avowed atheist, and there was someone from the Alliance Defending Fund, or Alliance Defending Freedom. She was a conservative Christian. The two speakers were up on the dais, but hundreds of students came in from the back and said, "We don't want any conservative voices here." Now, it's not uh, this morning's sermon is not about liberal and conservative uh, themes, but the point is simply that, that there was an intolerance of one perspective. And that even in a venue where there was an intention to have two perspectives and to coexist and to argue amicably, that was lost in the moment before it had even begun. And that's, that's the state of our world right now, where people who have a few opposing viewpoints Refuse to listen to one another and assume every person on the other side is completely and utterly wicked or deluded. I'll, I'll tell you, Christ has no tolerance for either of those viewpoints or either of those opposing perspectives. That either side on any political stand, uh, from any political stand or in whatever country, wherever we are in the world... Jesus Christ does not intend to build a political kingdom. And Jesus will affirm that here this morning in this text. Nor does he intend to build a kingdom that that reestablishes some ancient form of religion. Jesus will speak to that as well. Well, there are many views concerning the kingdom of God. Some believe that we should uh, build the kingdom of God through social engagement of Christians, redeeming culture, carrying Jesus into the world through Christian monasticism or or, or pushing for social justice. Uh, there are other Christians who are seeking to reestablish a Christian morality by an imposition upon societal or a society with societal change built on the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, what 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 you might see uh, going on there is that people who are fomenting for the posting of Ten Commandments, in, uh, God's Ten Commandments, in public places, or the exercise of Christian faith in one's uh, occupation, uh, visibly, audibly, uh, almost in-your-face sort of way. Um others hold the view that Christ uh, Christ is reigning immediately and and ruling in the present world that this is his kingdom others say that Christ is uh, Christ will, will build his kingdom in the new millennium and uh, that Christ will or, or that Christ will have a rule a future rule in heaven itself there are all sorts of viewpoints concerning the kingdom of God but i hope as I've echoed a few moments I'll echo what i said a few moments ago i I hope that our hope is that regardless of the timing that we are looking for and we are hoping for the return of Jesus Christ, our desire is for him. Now, in this context, Jesus has been speaking uh, to his disciples. He has been instructing them. He has uh, been speaking in parables. He has been speaking in, in analogous sort of ways and metaphorical ways. He has been speaking with the uh, within indirectly with the Pharisees and and then at moments coming out and speaking directly against them so that they know precisely who he is speaking to but he has been interacting with them and he has been interacting with and teaching his disciples he is continuing to do that here in this passage in verse 20 and following we've been asking the question well how is a Christian to live and what does it mean to live in this world and how can I relate to fellow Christians? And then last week we saw uh, what does it mean or how am I supposed to relate to God? And we saw that in, 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 in Jesus and what he had said with regard to faith. The earlier portion of chapter 17 and being on our guard and willing, being willing to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ and even to rebuke sin if we observe it. And then we saw these ten lepers, only one of which returned to Jesus and gave thanks. So we we could ask, uh, we could see that this instruction concerns believers and and still is speaking to the subject of what does it mean to live as a Christian in this world? And I'll put to you this morning from the text that to, to live in this world as a Christian is to have an expectation of and a continuing readiness for the return of Jesus Christ. So the question confronts us all, am I ready for Christ to come? Am I ready? Am I sure that I am ready? That my heart and my head are in the right place? That I am in right standing before my God not knowing the timing nor the place of Christ's return, but knowing the absolute certainty of it—that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Well, the Pharisees are asking him about uh, what what what's happening here, and and concerning the kingdom of God. Even the disciples are wondering about this question in Acts chapter one, verse six. Jesus has been resurrected; he is not yet. Uh, ascended, and the disciples asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, they're anticipating a political kingdom being restored to the nation and the people, the eth- ethnicity of Israel, the Israelites. Will they once again, uh, will a theocracy, uh, God intimately and directly ruling over his people, be reestablished? They misunderstood. They misunderstood the na- na- the nature of the kingdom of God, and they misunderstood uh, the nature of Christ's intention in coming. Well, the Pharisees ask Jesus about the kingdom of God, and they're they're testing uh, his role as a Messiah and King. It's a hot topic. They are under Roman rule. They are occupied. They are. Subject to injustice, they must continually submit their law and their law's expectations to the Romans law. They were not permitted to do numerous things with regard to their own practice and judgments unless approved by the Roman uh, rulers. They were oppressed. There was an expectation of a reestablishment of Jewish rule. They longed for a renewal of the Davidic kingdom. They believed that God would put his king, who would be in the line of David, there on the throne so that he could reign politically and religiously in their day over the Romans yet again. And so they were desperately seeking signs. Now, their, 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 their expectations were dual. They, they wanted relief from their oppressors. But they also had self-interests. If, in fact, the king which God would send, in in, in their mind, if God would send his king, then he would reestablish the government, and they would be lifted once again to a preeminent place in the priesthood, and they would once again be the religious authorities over the nation. And the Mosaic law would would be renewed and and would be required once again for godly living, and they. They would once again hold prominence, and, and so there was, they had self-interests involved here, and they wanted to know about the kingdom of God, and they're testing Jesus. There are some who have an expectation of destruction and expulsion of the Roman occupiers. Some had been sympathizers, and they had gone along with their Roman occupiers, and they had largely become pagan in some senses, religious pagans. Well, they longed to see this, and they were asking Jesus. And so we see two things in the text this morning. One is a word to the Pharisees, and a second is a word to the disciples. First, a word to the Pharisees. And and there are two things that Jesus says to them. And the first of uh, of which is simply this, uh, that he denies the timing and the expectation of signs that they clearly have been discussing with him or he knows is on their mind. They have expected certain and specific signs relating to the return of the Messiah and and God's uh, renewal of the kingdom. And, And they wanted to know the timing of it. When will this happen? And so Jesus rejects this and says, No, you won't know when it happens. You cannot look for signs beyond what's standing before you, the king. King of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't it remarkable as Jesus interacts with them, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, for some of us, our translations say the kingdom of God is in you. Certainly the Greek text can support such a an idea, but he's not saying to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is inside of you as individuals. Rather, he's saying it's in the midst of you, it's around you, it's, it's before you. The king of kings is the one speaking with you. And if we could say in any way that the kingdom of God is impersonated, it is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the king of kings, Lord of lords. And so he denies their expectations of signs. He rejects their idea that they would like to know the timing of it. Their ideas and expectations of the kingdom of God are not of any substance to Jesus. And in fact, in other passages, Jesus will say, in the limitations of his humanity, he is not aware of the timing of the return of the Son. In his humanity, it is not Aware of the timing of his return. In his infinite eternity as God, he knows full well. But in the limitations of his mind, while dwelling upon this earth as a full human, he did not know the timing of that return. He said, That belongs to my Father, he says. Jesus said to Pilate at one point when he was being interviewed prior to his crucifixion, he said to Pilate when asked, Pilate asks him, are you a king? And, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The Pharisees needed to hear that as well. Jesus and his kingdom are not of this world. They are looking for a restoration of their own fortunes. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, nor is it like your expectation. But this is what they desired. They wanted a political world. They wanted a, a political kingdom, a social kingdom, a religious kingdom, where they would fill an integral part. You know, I thank God, his purposes are greater and far grander than what we would what we would want. Uh, Aren't any of us like that, really? If we could be set up in a sovereign position where we were in charge, we would be more than happy. And many of us would be utterly content. And if we were in such a position where we did not really live each day with the recognition of our, our continuing and abiding need of God, wouldn't that be very, very dangerous to our soul? I thank God his purposes are greater. If God is not dependent upon government for the establishment of his kingdom at all, if he were, can you think about the various governments throughout the world and and their desires to squash the church? You think about China. Many, many years ago, I think it was in the 20s or 30s, the Communist Party took over Communist China and Uh, missionaries departed from the country. They were very, very concerned that the Chinese church would be utterly eliminated and snuffed out. And yet here we are in the 21st century, 22nd. And we're well aware that there are untold house churches, and, and the numbers of Christians that are in China exceed hundreds of millions of people. It's an extraordinary thing to think about or, or on the continent of Africa and all the strife and the wars and the rumors of wars that have coursed across that, uh, that continent and nation after nation after nation have had despot after despot after dictator after dictator, oppressive governments and Islamic governments seeking to squash and completely ruin the church. And what has happened? The church has grown. The church has prevailed against the, the very gates of hell, hasn't it? God is not dependent upon the reestablishment of any government institution. God does not depend upon any government institution. If our if our own nation's government goes completely pagan, has no regard whatsoever for the Judeo Christian ethic, has no regard for the sanctity of life embraces murder, embraces every aberrant form of sexuality and of gender uh, misidentity and every other hot-button issue under the sun, it will not matter ultimately to the overall health of the kingdom of God nor of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ will prevail because God is omnipotent. God is building His kingdom. He is not dependent upon your local government. He's not dependent upon the federal government. He's not dependent upon anything other than himself and his own strength and power. What we have observed in our world is that Christ is building his kingdom. And he will do it wherever he pleases and whenever he pleases. So what is the kingdom of God? Graham Goldsworthy he's a New Testament writer or or uh, uh, a commentator on New Testament passages. And uh, he says this, God, uh, uh, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. I think that's a very good definition. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is in their midst, the Pharisees. It's in their very midst. Jesus has denied the timing in their expectation of signs, but he has also said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. They can't see it, but there's an affirmation that it is already manifest because the king himself is speaking to them. They have no idea that they are speaking to the eternal son of God. They have no idea that they are speaking to the one being The one divine being, the one who comes in the line of David, the one who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the expectation of every Old Testament text that they themselves have held dear. That he is the fullness and the fullest of all of their expectations, that he exceeds far greater all of their own desires. They have no idea. And yet he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Can you imagine speaking to Jesus Christ, standing before his face, and having no faith and no understanding of who he is? Of refusing to believe, of being unwilling to believe, this is the eternal Son of God. This is the Messiah in whom we have hoped. This is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And yet they hold him in derision and they ridicule him and they test him and they try him and they ask him questions with no intention of hearing. The king stands before them and they have rejected him. If the kingdom of God is looked for, wouldn't the presence of the one whom he has promised to send, who would be the Messiah, who would be the personification of the kingdom of God, wouldn't that be the authenticating sign of the kingdom of, that the kingdom of God had come? What more sure sign could they have than that the very Messiah of God was speaking to them? God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so as the disciples were gathering there before Jesus and listening to his instruction, he has instructions for them. There is a word for the disciples. But as we anticipate this, we have to recognize that The kingdom of God is such that Christ has entered into this world divinity. The eternal God has come down amongst men, has tabernacled amongst mankind. Every promise made has been fulfilled. The king has come. The king has come. You are not waiting dear friend for the king to come. You are not waiting in the se- or for the first time. You are not waiting for some unfulfilled messianic hope. There is nothing left to be performed. Christ finished all that the Father had sent him to accomplish. That's why on the cross at the end he says, it is finished. He had come to obey perfectly the law of God. He had come to be tempted and thus to prove his worth and value as one who could endure the temptation of sin and not sin. He had come as the Lamb of God to offer himself as as a sacrifice for sin so that by his blood and his body he would cleanse and provide grace for and forgiveness and righteousness, a foreign righteousness The standing of righteousness, the removal of guilt for all who believe. And this he did. This he did perfectly. And so the kingdom of God is at its apex, Jesus Christ. And it filters down into his people gathered in his name. Wherever he is in the midst of them, and where we are under God's rule, and so we are part of the kingdom of God. And every place where Christ rules is under the kingdom of God. And so Christ is ruling this very world as part of the kingdom of God. But especially in and 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 in, in most in most in a most holy way, so is the church. When we are gathered together, we need to recognize that when we are here, the Lord is with us. The Lord is in our midst. We're part of the kingdom of God. The Lord is reigning. The Lord is ruling. The Lord is near. The Lord is present. But what we see and what we have experienced is nothing in comparison to what is yet to come. There is a kingdom that will be established in this world visibly for all to see. There will be a great city on a hill that will descend from the heavens and the new, in the new heavens and the new earth. And Christ will reign there amongst his people eternally, gloriously, and his people will be happy and joyful. And there will be no presence of sin and no opportunity for sin. And we will worship the Lamb of God. That will be inaugurated when our Savior returns. So one day when Jesus Christ comes again, the kingdom of God in its manifest, boldest, most universal sense will be manifest to all the world. The whole world will see. And so there is something extremely significant for all of us to look for, and that is to look for the return of Christ. And that's why Jesus says what he says to the disciples. In this word to the disciples, he speaks about the second coming. And there's yes, there's a lot of misunderstanding. So let's take this text. Let's examine these words that Christ shares with his disciples and see at the very least in its simplest sense what he says about the kingdom of God and about his return. Now he echoes what he said to the, to the, to the Pharisees. And he says, look, some will come and say, look, he's over here, or hey, he's over here. And he rejects that idea both times, and he will reject it multiple times throughout his Gospels. At the very least, first and foremost, when Christ comes again, his return will be visible. It will be visible. I know that sometimes we, we, we are inclined to think that there are secret returns of Christ. In fact, there was an individual who had come to this church some time ago, and uh, he was convinced that Christ had returned at some point post-ascension. So at some point when during the events of the, the record of Acts that Luke has recorded for us, there's not a single mention of the return of Christ. There's only the mention of Christ's ascension uh, after his resurrection, And that's it. We don't see Christ physically on the earth again, other than in his appearances in some form uh, to to Paul and in other places. But he was no longer physically present in this world because he bodily ascended. Yes, there was an individual who believed that Christ had uh, descended to the earth bodily had returned, had had brought certain events to a close and and that the end of the world had come, essentially, and that uh, the, that 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 human humankind would continue as we are and until eventually there'd be a, a second return, a third coming, a second return. I think Jesus here in this passage and many others squashes that idea altogether. Someone will say, he's over here. Oh, he's over there. That's not going to happen. Rather, Jesus says, just like you see the lightning as it flashes in the sky. Last night we had some lightning come through our area. Very quick, uh, rapid storms. and, And I heard the thunder and I saw the lightning. It was a long way off. But we've been in significant lightning storms, haven't we? Where all of a sudden, in the midst of utter darkness... There is instant light that is so bright and it flashes everywhere. It's not like when we turn a light on in the bedroom uh, or, or in our office and the light comes on and it shines in that space only. But lightning fills every space instantly. And so what Jesus is saying there is that his return will be visible. I think it's also very important that preceding that visible second coming is an expectation of his suffering. And that's what he says. He tells them, it's first, the Son of Man must suffer. And then he will come. And when he comes, so we're in that position. We're in that period right there between Christ's ascension, his suffering, and then his being raised from the dead and ascending to the Father and, and that timing of when he's coming. So we are in the middle of that period of time and we are waiting for the Lord to come. That's it. Nothing more. We have no expectation of any other signs in the heavens other than that Christ is coming. That's it. You know, there were many people post-ascension who claimed to be Jesus Christ and there have been many other peoples, people, even in popular circles, who have claimed to be some manifestation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> some young moon, Hare Krishna, who knows, various other individuals who have claimed that they are Jesus Christ. I've met people like that in, in mental hospitals. The fact of the matter is Jesus is saying no... My return will be visible. All will see. And it will be like a flash of lightning in the sky. Everyone will see it. It will impact the entirety of humanity. Just like when you're in the midst of something in your home, you're distracted, you're not going to look up. Even if, you're, if, you're, if your beloved other says to you, Hey, I need your help. And we would say, I, I didn't hear, I didn't know. But when lightning goes off in the skies, instantly it has our attention typically. Because it is a striking noise and it is a striking light. And Jesus is saying, my return will be like that. Don't worry, you will not miss out on the return of Christ. You will see and you will know when he comes. Also, the return of Christ will be unexpected and unlooked for. It will break in upon mankind. It is tragic how very unprepared people, even in churches, are as it concerns the return of Jesus Christ. Are you ready today for Jesus to take you home, either through your own death or his return? Jesus says no one knows the hour when he will descend from heaven and come again but that we are to be prepared for that great day. Are we prepared? Is everything set in motion is are are the entireties of uh, is the entirety of our life so prepared that even though uh, we haven't necessarily confessed every single sin but yes we have been consistent with the Lord each day has been begun with prayer each day has been in some way prepared for That the idea, at least, that Christ is coming. And is there a spirit of expectation in your life? Is there an expectation that, yes, I I want the Lord to come? Or or are you harboring some hope that certain other events will take place first? Or that it will give you a number of years? Or that other things will take place? Or that in some way, you would desire a little more joy in this life? before entering into the next. Unexpected, unlooked for, eating and drinking in the days of Noah, marrying, being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Noah had for a lengthy period built that ark and he had proclaimed exactly what he was doing. And so people knew, and they could observe the animals entering into that ark. They could observe Noah's extraordinary work in lifting up those beams and creating this massive boat. They could look upon this man, they could hear his statement, the proclamation of his life, the end of the world is near. Yet they hated him. They ridiculed him. And not a single one of them got on the ark with them, not one. To the very day when the earth was destroyed by the flood, they were marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking. The routines of daily life, the expectation of temporary and worthless things and These are the great danger, I think, to men, Christian men and women and boys and girls. We think that these things will go on day by day. These are the things that dull the sharpness of our Christian expectation and of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. They they satiate and satisfy the human heart for a little while and a little bit. But it's enough. And we lose sight that Christ has promised to us an imagined blessing, untold, an extraordinary blessing of being in his presence forever. We forget the blessing and the the infinite blessing of being in the presence with the Lord. To be with the Lord, Paul says, is better Are we by our choices? Are we by our lack of preparation? Are we because we are not expecting or looking for the return of the Lord? Are we killing? Are we dulling our expectation of God and of His return? Are we dulling the sharpness of the Word of God? Are we dulling the sharpness of our love for Him? I think also this kingdom, the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom being made manifest in the world is is also shocking. It's quite shocking. In the passage, it says that there will be individuals who would be on the housetop and there will be those who would hold on to their resources. And uh, and we are to remember Lot's wife. And What did Lot's wife do? Lot was told to run from the city and God was intending to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did she do? She for a moment looked back, and as she looked back she was turned to salt because God in his judgment determined that she longed in her heart for what she had just left behind. And she longed for in her heart what God had destined for destruction. Her appetite for God had been dulled by her delight in the world. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. It's very, very shocking in the passage further that there were, on that day there would be individuals who are in the house and uh, two will be in bed and one will be taken, the other will be left. there will be two women grinding at the mill and one will be left and the other uh, will be taken. It's an extraordinary, invisible sign of the return of Christ. And it's not that uh, this will happen whereby... Uh, In in, in, over a course uh, that, that the Lord will return and all those who are his will be snatched up into the air with him, taken, and then there will continue to be a time when Christ will reign over the earth and those people who are left on the earth will have an opportunity to turn to Christ. It's not that at all. And then he comes again. Rather, the events in its simplest sense should be taken in its simplest sense. On the day when Christ returns, on the face of the earth, there will be people everywhere. And he will single out those who are his. And as he says to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians, they will be snatched up into the air and they will ascend to be with the Lord. Well, what about the rest? They will still stay on the earth. And they will be destined for destruction. And it would all happen in an instant, in the blink of an eye, in that moment, on that day. Why we place a thousand-year reign in there is beyond me. Take the text at face value. On the day when Christ comes, it will be observed. It will be seen. Mankind will not be prepared. It will be unexpected. It will be shocking because of the numbers of people in any people group. Some will be gathered to Jesus who had believed, and others who had not believed will not be gathered to Jesus, but will be reserved for eternal fire and damnation because they had rejected Jesus Christ and had not believed. It's a very public and very visible second coming in which all those who are Christ's will be taken up in the air with him. It's an incredible and visible separation amongst humanity. Not all will ascend to be with the Lord except those who are his. His. And all those who are his will ascend with the Lord. They will not be left behind. There will not be any left behind. Let's hear that. Despite the popular movie series, despite the many popular books, there will not be a single child of God left behind on the day of Christ's coming. And all those who are here left on this earth will be destined for eternal hellfire because they had rejected Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle has some words of counsel here on this passage. We should observe in these verses what a dreadful separation there will be when Christ comes again. Our Lord describes this separation with very striking pictures. Converted or unconverted will be the only subject of inquiry. It will matter nothing that people have worked together and slept together and lived together for many years. They will be dealt with or at the, at the last according to their faith. Those members of the family who have loved Christ will be taken up to heaven. Those who have loved the world will be cast into hell. Converted and unconverted shall be separated forevermore when Jesus comes again. What should we do with this With this information? Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn away and repent of your sins. And the life of Christ will be made evident in your soul. And you will be certain, you will have an increasing certainty that Christ is your Lord and Savior, that you have an eternal promise of eternal rest and hope in Christ, that Christ's righteousness is your own, uh, that it has been imputed to you and that your guilt has been imputed to Him, your sins have been placed upon Him and He has paid all the price. That the wrath of God that is destined against all unbelievers in the last great day when Jesus Christ comes again will be turned away from you because the blood of the Lamb cries out for a better treatment. Because you believe in Jesus Christ and the blood which he shed on the cross was shed for you. But if you refuse to believe, then you will die and you'll be lost in your own sin and transgressions. That is your choice. You are a free moral agent. That is your choice to refuse to hear and to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to, to reject the outward call of the gospel, to believe and turn. May God truly, may God truly grant you to see and to hear, to believe, to repent, and to believe in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, dear friends, in conclusion, is it's His kingdom. And where His kingdom is displayed and man, made manifest to the world is in His church. Amongst the believing community and, and people from every tribe and nation everywhere gather different and differing and in congregational voice, believing the word of God, nonetheless, and looking for the return of the Savior. And he is building his kingdom in this world and in this universe. He is sovereign. He is the one building it. He can be trusted in his church. He knows what his church needs. He is in our midst. There is an uncertainty about his timing, about his return. But there's an absolute certainty about the fact that he will return. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Let us hold fast to that certainty. John Calvin says, The uncertainty of the timing of Christ's coming, which for the most part induces idleness in man, ought to be a stimulus to our attention and watchfulness. We should be watchful and savor, savor the expectation of his coming. It should make us much more watchful. We should not be careless. There are warnings in this passage about being careless, of being non expectant men and women. But for every believer, there is the promise of eternal and inexpressible joy, of triumphant glory of deep deliverance, of rest, and of victory for every expectant, believing Christian man, woman, and child. And some of us are very, very weary of living in this world, are we not? Some of us are very, very weary with the inevitable decline, both cognitively and physically. Many of us are very, very weary with wars and rumors of wars. And we long for the Lord Jesus to come. And some of us have been ill-treated. And some of us lack justice. And some of us are crying out for something more. Jesus is coming. The King is coming. And he has far more for you by way of spiritual and physical blessing than you could ever, ever imagine or think. Trust in Jesus. Look to his coming. He is coming soon. Let's pray.